From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. More than 30 years ago, Robin Ferris made a choice that sent her to prison with no chance of parole for four decades. Prison is a place where you you can't hide. You can't run. You have to face yourself. She was recently granted a form of clemency that could shorten her sentence after she turned her life around in prison. But for the family of the woman she killed... I understand everybody changes. I do. I understand that. But you, you can't take the hurt and pain, you know, especially when I received the call from the coroner asking me to identify her body. So, no. Mm-mm. Even though it's been that long, you never forget it. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. Tomorrow, a member of the state parole board will meet with Robin Ferris, the first black woman to receive a form of clemency in Colorado in 30 years. Ferris was originally sentenced to life in prison for first-degree felony murder with no chance of parole for at least 40 years. The clemency decision could shave eight years off that sentence. In anticipation of the meeting, CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie spoke with Ferris and her lawyers. Robin, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning. How are you feeling right now? I feel, uh, I'm excited. It's new. I have, you know, going to see the parole board. So this being the first time for me, you know, I'm excited about the experience. I've heard a lot about you doing a lot of things to be of service to fellow inmates. What made you want to do that? You know, I've reached a point early on in in the course of my incarceration where, you know, you get to this this place in here where you you hit a a crossroad. And there's so many directions, oh my goodness, that one can decide to take. There's a lot of negative behaviors that uh, people can, you know, kind of lean towards. But uh, it's, it's much, much harder to pull out the positive the positive aspects of being in, inside of a prison, the fact that I had a, such a lengthy, lengthy sentence. But it was a conscious decision that I made to, uh, to lean towards the positive. Did you serve the entire sentence in Denver Women's Prison? No. You know what? This prison wasn't here. It was not even built when I first arrived in prison. In 1991, I was housed at the Women's Correctional Facility in Canyon City. And, uh, yeah, Denver Women's Correctional Facility, it was not here when I first arrived. So what year did you start being incarcerated at Denver Women's? I believe it was in 2000. So while you were waiting, were you hopeful about getting clemency? Oh, you have to live in hope in a situation like mine. If, if you don't live in hope, then you, you're living in the quite opposite of that. In, in, I mean, in a, a perpetual state of despair. And I have witnessed individuals who I've known that have actually taken their lives. And so 
you know, hope is it's an anchor, and, and you maintain that level of hope because you look forward to that day that possibly, possibly your situation will turn around. Your sentence will be something different than what it was when you first arrived, and uh, you can look forward to having a future. There were many, many, many um, epiphanies. <laughs> there were many, you know, situations where I felt extremely blessed and grateful. Prison, you know, is my consequence, understandably. But since I've been incarcerated, I have experienced so many profound um, joys and and discoveries, not only with who I am, but just witnessing the growth and the potential of so many people around me, so many women around me. Prison is a place where you, you can't hide. You can't run. You have to face yourself. And I'm grateful, actually, having the opportunity to be in a, in a, in a position where I could no longer run from myself. I am extremely grateful to Governor Polis for allowing me this opportunity, and I think that's important. He's allowed me an opportunity for a new beginning, and I think what he did was um, was phenomenal. And I am so, so grateful that he's allowed me this. So grateful. So I saw the letter that Governor Polis wrote you in December telling you that he was granting you eligibility for parole. When you got the news, what were you doing and what was your reaction? This is, of course, a moment that I will never, ever forget. And my case manager had been looking for me, unbeknownst to me. So when she came up to the area, she saw me and she said, Miss Ferris, I've been looking all over for you. And she said, um, Thursday, and this was on a Tuesday. So she tells me, Thursday morning at 9.30, I need you to come to my office because I'm going to get a phone call from the governor's office. And uh, I didn't know what to think about that. I didn't know what that meant. That's how initially I learned that I was going to be sitting in front of somebody having a conversation with, uh, you know, some representatives from the governor's office in my case manager's office on the 22nd of December. And we had a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. And there were three women who appeared on that Zoom call. And then they told me that uh, Governor Polis had decided to grab my petition for clemency. And for me, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of crying. And uh, there was, it was a lot of joy, but there was a lot of tears, <laughs> tears of joy. It was surreal. It was surreal. And I just you know, called my family and uh, you know, informed them because they'd been waiting. They knew that I had a meeting at 930. Nobody knew what it was. So I called them and to let them know that uh, it had actually been, you know, the clemency grant that I was uh, that I received. And how did they react? Their reaction was, um, oh, it was so it was heartfelt. It was amazing. It was a feeling of relief. There was a lot of joy, um, a lot of tears, a lot of uh, thankfulness, extreme thankfulness. Probably some, you know, some screams, <laughs> some joyful screams that happened as well. It was phenomenal. It was good. It was a good time. We were happy. We were all happy. I know it's probably an emotional topic for you to talk about, but I'm wondering what, if anything, about the crime that happened in 1990 do you feel comfortable sharing? What happened in 1990 was, it was devastating. It was traumatic for the family as well as mine, and it definitely should have never happened. I have always, since that day, taken accountability and responsibility for for the death of me. There's a family out there. There's a family out there that's still grieving, and so I'm very mindful of that. 
you know, there there was a you know dysfunctions in our in our relationship, but that in no way, no way justifies you know my actions or my behaviors that night. So when you say B, you're speaking of Beatrice King, yes, and that's the name of the victim. So if mm-hmm. she were here, or if her family were here, sitting where I am, what would you say to them? I would definitely want them to know how how sorrowful and regretful I am that I took somebody that they loved from them. How my actions certainly devastated them, changed the dynamic of their of their family unit, and that I am. So, so, so sorry. Do you think that if you were to be granted parole, would you want to connect with them in any way? That is uh, not something that I'm allowed to do, is have any contact with them. That is a law. Now, if they were you know, willing to reach out to me, um, that would be something that would have to be facilitated, um, you know, perhaps through the Department of Corrections and some type of victim's advocacy program that they have established here within the Department of Corrections, but I cannot, I will never be able to, you know, initially reach out to them. I understand that. I wanted to also ask you, let's suppose you receive parole. What are your plans as far as where you'll live? Well, my parole plan has already been put in for my brother, my eldest brother. So he has definitely availed his home to me. And I also understand that you had a daughter when you were about 22, and she's now in her 30s. Can you tell me about what you envision in terms of reconnecting with her? She turned out to be, in spite of the circumstances, a very strong, strong individual. And I'm very proud of my daughter and what she's accomplished with you know, the obstacles that she had to overcome with having an absent parent, a parent incarcerated. Certainly there's a lot of work to be done between her and I to to build our relationship back to a place where it can, can heal the two of us together. We need to be in a room physically together and um, to talk about and discuss certainly her emotions. And I want her to be free and... Um, to have the freedom to tell me whatever, whatever, and whatever is in her heart. Because uh, she, she has the right to do that. If she's angry, if she's this, that, and the other, we can reconnect with each other as mother and daughter. And I really am looking forward to that. And she is too. She is too. So over the years, how often have you had a chance to see her? Well, in the beginning, when she was much, much younger, you know, the, week, the visits were every weekend. You know, my father would bring her up on the weekends, and we... We definitely saw each other on a regular, regular basis. And, of course, that, that continued even, you know, into her, her teenage years and into her adult years. I was very familiar with things that were going on in her life. We called each other continually. You know, parenting from inside prison is extremely difficult. So what are some of the things that you hope to do if and when you get out of there? For me, I think it's important that I, I keep my feet grounded and be very, very realistic about what I have to face when I leave. First of all, one day at a time. You know, my goal is to be reintroduced, of course, into society as a member, a productive member of society, and do the things that people do, pay taxes and, and uh, you know, adhere to the laws and, and things of this nature. I think the more 
the more realistic point of view is for me to leave this place, get out, get a job, okay, and uh, continue on, on along that path, along that line, which is normal, just is a normal life, and then just discover as time goes by the things that I want to do. I'm open to uh, just learning more and more and more. I'm just not ever going to close the door to that. And so um, I'm excited about that portion of my new life. I'm excited about that. What about work? Do you have any thoughts or plans as far as what you might like to do? Yeah, I mean, for now, um, my my cousin who owns her own business has, uh, she's she's going to employ me. So I'm going to walk out into a job and, and I don't necessarily know, you know how long I'll stay with her. But I do really sincerely appreciate that she's given me um, employment and so I can walk out from this place straight into a job. And what kind of a job is that going to be? She has a an area, um, this is downtown, downtown Denver, where she deals with consulting as far as drug testing for what I believe is athletes who are trying to compete. And, um, you know, what she'll have me doing, I'm not necessarily sure, but I, I would imagine has something to do with, you know, records and business work, business office work or something along those lines. But I also know that, you know, the challenges of, of an individual such as myself, especially having been incarcerated for decades, coming out of a prison environment and have to, you know, I have to explain to some degree why I have been out of the workforce for so long. Um, and that's going to be a challenge for me. What about transportation? Well, you know, my father, who was deceased, he left me his vehicle. And uh, he treated it, treated it like it was, you know, pretty much his baby. He kept it in the garage and never drove it. But he would always say to me, Robin, you are going to need a vehicle when you get out. My brother's kept it for me, so it's it's there in his garage right now waiting for me to get behind the wheel of it. So a lot yeah. has changed in the world since you went in. Some of that, I'm sure, made its way into prison. But what do you look forward to learning about when you get out? I have never held a smartphone. Never. And so learning how to navigate in a world that is, is so technologically advanced, that is going to be my first challenge. My primary objective is to learn the world the way that it exists today and to navigate myself through, you know, um, the technological things that I have to learn and know. But I have a lot of help. I have a lot of people who are waiting for me and they're they're supporting me. And so um, I know that I won't have to walk this by myself. Do you think you'll want to get a Facebook account or an Instagram account or join Twitter or anything? You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rule it out. When I get there I'll just kinda have to kinda I don't know, feel my way through that and and figure that out as I go along. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is the whole clemency process. It started with the direct appeal after trial and then every single appeal after that. And of course this is when my father was still around, he was still with us and so he was very adamant about not ever giving up, um, you know, the fight for this and uh, with, with every means possible with, you know, the legal processes of you know, the appellate courts and, and whatnot. And, of course, you know, every appeal was obviously was unsuccessful. It was long, it was arduous, and it was unsuccessful. But here we are. Here we are. What are some of the goals that you plan to reach if you're released? Certainly, I receive help from individuals, and uh, I think it's important to always, you know, create that perfect circle and that cycle and to give back. And so that's what I want to do when I'm released. I have, you know, authored devastation and, uh, you know, been responsible for, you know, causing trauma 
And so I think it's important that I I also be the person that is instrumental in helping others. Is there anything else I didn't touch on that you'd like to share before we close? I just cannot say this enough, how extremely blessed I am to have the two women who are in your studio right now that have been with me through all of this. And, uh, I mean, you know, Kristen and, and Risa are two of the most amazing women that I've ever met. Well, we're going to be talking with both of them as soon as we hang up with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this morning, Robin. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. So we're here in the studio with Robin Ferris's two lawyers, Kristen Nelson and Risa Wolf-Smith. Kristen, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? I am the executive director of a small new nonprofit in Colorado called Sparrow Justice Center. Sparrow Justice Center, our mission, our goal is to fight against excessive sentencing practices in the United States. Um, We're dedicated to helping people get out of prison who don't need to be there anymore. Um, Prison is very costly, both monetarily and in other ways. And um, we're hoping to bring more people home like Robin who no longer need to be incarcerated. And so what was your reaction when you found out about her clemency grant? Oh, (laughs) I was extremely happy and excited for her and proud of her. You know, uh, clemency to me exists for situations where um, a sentence doesn't make sense anymore, either because it was excessive in the first place or because sentencing laws have changed or because the person has changed. And for Robin, really all of those things, all three of those things were true. Um, If Robin were sentenced today, she would no longer be subject to the mandatory life sentence she received because the Colorado legislature reduced the penalties for felony murder in 2021. I think it's important to note that Robin herself has changed, and that was perhaps the most important part of her clemency grant to me. She's healed. She's grown. She's demonstrated remorse and accountability, and she's ready to be released from prison. And we're also joined in studio by... Robin Ferris's other lawyer, Risa Wolf Smith. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself? I'm a bankruptcy and restructuring attorney. Uh, I don't have any background in criminal law. I've practiced as a partner at Holland and Hart for 35 years. I basically came to a fork in the road in my career where I didn't feel like I was helping society or a person, and I was longing to do that. Robin's about my age, and I just kind of felt like she and I had something in common, and I wanted to help her. So between you and Kristen, you've spent about a 1,000 hours working on the clemency petition. Can you talk about what that work involved? Well, initially, I had to get the electronic and paper files of all the decades of lawyers that she'd been through and sort through pages and pages of documents and court rulings to kind of get my hands around the case. And then we recognized that we needed to do a video to kind of personalize this and show who Robin was. If the family of a victim were sitting here, what would you want to say to them? Um, You know, this is such a difficult question. My husband, when I took this case on, said to me, he he wasn't a fan of me taking this case. Um, mostly because he said, what if your daughter or your son had been the victim? 
And I don't know how you overcome that hurt and pain. Um, but as Kristen said, 30 years is a long time, and it's actually coming up on 32 years. And she's suffered, and she's paid a huge price. And if they met her, they would see that she's remorseful and every day has thought about what she's done and tried to make amends by helping other people. And that's what she's trying to do. Thank you both so much for coming in and spending some time with us this morning. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Risa Wolf-Smith and Kristen Nelson are attorneys who helped Robin Ferris get a form of clemency. She meets with a member of the parole board tomorrow after serving nearly 32 years of a 40-year minimum life in prison sentence for felony murder. They spoke with CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie. The victim in this case, Beatrice King, is survived by three sisters, and they are not happy about the possibility that her killer could be released from prison before serving the minimum time of her sentence. Elaine speaks with each of them after the break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Before the break, we heard from Robin Ferris and her attorneys. She's the first black woman to receive a form of clemency in Colorado in 30 years. Ferris is serving life in prison for first-degree felony murder with no chance for parole until at least 40 years. The clemency could cut that by eight years. The victim in that crime was Beatrice B.B. King, whom Ferris had been in a romantic relationship with before the murder in Aurora. King's three sisters describe her as their biggest cheerleader. Their family is originally from Detroit. That's where Sylvia Cox still lives. Deborah King is in Georgia, and Marissa King is in Tennessee. They spoke with CPR's Elaine Tassie by phone about the possibility that the woman who killed their sister could go free years earlier. Deborah speaks first. They've been going back and forth, I guess, trying to get her release, and, and it's just like, um, I'm wondering why, you know, uh, because the way I feel at the time when all of this happened, you know, it's to me, it's just, it's, it, it was a whole lot of life loss, not only my sister, hers and her child. And, and, and that's why I'm against it because it's so, it was so senseless. And I understand she wants to get out, but do you understand what you had done or what you've taken away. I just, I just don't have any sympathy because she could be here with me. So, and, and I understand everybody changes. I do. I understand that, but you, you can't uh, take the hurt and pain, you know, especially when I received the call from the, um, from the coroner asking me to identify her body. So, no, mm -mm. even though it's been that long, you never forget it. Why was she in Aurora? Well, she had lived there. She she had relocated there. 
I think she just wanted a change. When she was dating Robin, how do you think that the two of them came to know each other? Well, my sister was an outgoing person. She did whatever anybody wanted to do. She was right there for you. You said, come on, help me move. She right there. And what was your childhood like? It was good. It was good. And what were some of the things that Bibi liked to do? Concerts. She loved landscaping. She loved doing flowers. She loved just being out in the outdoors. She loved children. Um, She was just a happy-go-lucky person and had a heart of gold. If you had a chance to talk to Robin Farris on the phone, just like I'm talking with you right now, what would you want to say to her? Why? Why? No, she's now, if you want to help everybody, I understand that. But can you bring my sister back? If she were to receive parole as a result of the commutation from the governor, that would let her get out eight years sooner. How do you feel about that? Nope, I think she could go on and, and do the rest of her time. Would you want her to contact you if she could? Nope, nope, nope. I don't have anything to say to her. So you wouldn't want to reach out to her either? Nope. So if she wanted to apologize to you, would you be interested in listening? Nope, I'm good. I'm not going to bring my sister back. You have to deal with that yourself. You have to deal with that within yourself. Don't apologize to me because it's not going to do anything. When I go out there to the cemetery, when I go home, I go out there to the cemetery, and I see my sister, and I know now it's nothing but ashes, but that's my sister. So, no, I'm good. What do you think her dreams were for her life? I really don't know. I really don't. I know whatever he wanted to do, um, no more than anybody else. Be comfortable and have a good life and have someone to love her. No more than any one of us want. Not not to end up deceased. That was Deborah King. Elaine also spoke with the victim's sister, Marissa King, to get her perspective on the prospect of Ferris being released early. So I currently work in our uh, judicial and our legislative system here in Tennessee. Um, I am a six-year member of our legislation team here as an analyst, and I work very closely with victims and victim families that are going through the clemency system in Tennessee as well. It's the purpose of acknowledging the crime um, and making sure the offender acknowledges and is truly remorseful for the crime. And a big part of doing that is keeping constant contact and establishing a better relationship with your victim's family. And that has not happened. I've never wanted this to seem vindictive from the family's point of view, you know, Um, and it's just about the process and the morality of the situation. Just establishing some type of a remorseful relationship with your victim's family is of the utmost importance when discussing clemency of any sort. So even though you didn't get to meet Bibi, what do you, um, it sounds as though you still feel a connection to her. Yes, uh, definitely just because of how she acted and how she was as a person. 
listening about stories about her, things of that nature. You're very, very, very similar in personality and nature, all of the above. Um, and it really just kind of made a difference too when you know that, you know, things could be different. And obviously what a person could have accomplished if they were still there, that really just goes into it all. And so for me, I, I don't, because I've lost both of my parents at this point, I kind of was able to get through it in a different way that my older siblings were. And the BB thing, I can tell you, is still an open wound worse than our parents passing. That is something that Sylvia and Debbie still struggle with. And I truly believe it's just because the closure that comes from really gaining reconciliation was never there. Um, and for that reason, you know, it's just, it's been very difficult for them. And for me as well, to watch them have to go through it, that's for me the difficult part. It's just bringing my family peace at this point. Marissa King, the murder victim's sister, talking with CPR's Elaine Tassie. Finally, Elaine also spoke with Sylvia Cox. She still lives in Detroit, where the family is from and is battling cancer. I'm doing well. Just a little um, disturbed because every time that um, this subject matter or her death is brought up, it brings back painful memories. We try to remember the good times, but um, I understand that right now um, she is trying to get relief. Do you feel as though the amount of time that she has served so far is acceptable? No, I do not. And why not? She took a life. She should have life. She took a life. So if she wanted to apologize to you, would you be interested in hearing her apology? No. There's nothing more to say. She had an opportunity to speak on the witness stand. She gave up that right. She needs to serve her time. She thought about it. She planned it. It's just not, it's not fair. So the last time that you and your sister, Bibi, were together, what do you remember of that last communication? I spoke to Ms. Ferris. My sister on December 25th called home, and we all sat down, and my dad said, Bibi's on the phone. Everybody came to the phone, and we all spoke to her on December 25th. She says, I have a new friend. Her name is Robin. So she put her on the phone and she said hi to everybody. And my sister was so excited because she says, yes, she has a young child and I babysit her baby a lot. And this is Robin and nice to meet you. Hopefully we can meet you one day. Didn't think she would kill her. Last things, of course, we told her we loved her because we always did. But we didn't think that would uh, we would be speaking to a person that would take her life. So do you have any favorite memories about BB? She's my biggest fan. She was a, a true big sister. When I graduated from college, she was there. Her and my dad and my sister and my niece drove down from Detroit. Everything that I did, she always told me she was proud of me. She was always there. She never missed a moment. So when my dad passed away, he made me promise him that I would uh, make sure that Miss Ferris served her full term. We knew that 
Denver, Colorado's natural life was 40 years when we received the sentence, and we said we were okay with that. Even though we wanted life without parole, they gave with parole. But we knew she would serve 40 years, and we were okay with that. And he asked me to please make sure, if I could, that she served her 40 years. And she deserves to serve 40 years for taking a life. Clemency has been denied um, once before. So my family, we got together and we wrote multiple letters, friends, family, uh, co-workers, everything. It was denied once. And then we received it again. So we wrote again. Each time that we're notified, we write letters and we do whatever that we possibly can do because we are against clemency, we are against parole. To me, what she has to do involves her own self. I didn't take a life. The family is dealing with what you did. You have to deal with that yourself. You're trying to contact us to make you feel better. That's not going to work. We're still grieving. I don't care if it's been 30 years. Each time is brought up. Each time I go to Elmwood Cemetery, each time someone says, I remember your sister, we have to remember how brutally she was murdered. Brutally. If you were on the phone with Robin, like I'm on the phone with you right now, what would you like to say to her? Why? I was in the courtroom, and that's all I wanted to do was ask her why. Why? What did she do? That was so bad. They gave you the right to judge because only God makes those calls. One of his Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. We have no right. No right. So why? I have been in relationships, been hurt, felt run down, turned down, but never in my life did I say to myself, If I can't have you, nobody else can. How have you coped over the past 30 years? Did you ever get therapy or go to grief counseling or anything of that nature? A lot of counseling, therapy, um, just having to explain it to um, prior relatives, you know, our, our prior family that comes up where what happened to the other king girl? Oh, well, she passed away. Well, what happened? And just having to tell the story. It's history. It's history with us. It's a terrible history. It's an awful history. You know, she was an Army vet, too, and uh, they were at her funeral and all of that good stuff. And I have her flag here today. Every time something happens to me, like now, going through cancer, stage two, and um, I know she would say to me, you are strong. You can beat this because that's how she taught me. She taught me to be strong. So I think about her every time I take chemo and every time I get weak, I think about her and I don't think my time is yet ready. I think God has so much more for me to do on this earth. And that includes being a cheerleader for my sister because she's not here able to speak. Sylvia Cox, Marissa King, and Deborah King, each speaking with CPR race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie about their sister, Beatrice King. 
Robin Ferris murdered King in 1990 in Aurora. She is serving 40 years to life for felony murder, but a form of clemency that she has been granted by Governor Polis could lead to her receiving parole after serving closer to 32 years. She meets with the parole board member tomorrow. To follow Elaine's ongoing reporting on this case, visit CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. Picture a kitchen blender spinning at high speed, and inside, going around and around, is a big black lump. That's an image that high school student Maya Dawson drew in her diary as a kid. Looking back, she says it still makes her sad. It's the first time I can remember not having the words to express my emotions. That student, Maya Dawson, during a TEDx youth talk she gave last year titled Mental Health in Schools, We're Doing It Wrong. She's now a senior at Conifer High School in Jefferson County. She spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. I wonder now if you have the words to describe what you were feeling as a kid when you drew that picture in your diary. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that emotional intelligence and learning those words to talk about what you're feeling, it's not something that is natural for us. It's something that has to be learned. Um, You know, as a kid, I was really anxious. I wanted to do everything right all the time, like classic perfectionist. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it's, it's taken me a long time to work through that and think through how I was feeling and and how I can regulate myself and regulate my emotions to live a life that is more fulfilling. Sharing something so personal in front of so many people must have been challenging. What made you want to give this type of talk? Yeah, I mean, it's... It was definitely really vulnerable to go up in front of an entire audience and and talk about my emotions. And, And more than that, it was my generation. Historically, we are struggling so, so much. Like one of the most in terms of mental health, like since the Great Depression, we're talking. We have the statistics to show that we are really having a hard time across the board. So this isn't a new topic, but my generation is talking about it in a new way. We're trying to destigmatize it on social media. We're talking about it around, you know, the lunch table. Right. But we're not getting that education in a school setting. During your speech, you talk about another time when you later found yourself at a loss for words. And I just want to say to our listeners that this is a very sensitive thing. A friend who you didn't know very well told you about how she was harming herself. It was devastating and heartbreaking. And I laughed because once again, I didn't have the words to talk about my mental health and the mental health of the people I cared about. So from your perspective, like, why do you think this is happening? I feel like we live in this world that is very, very fast-paced, right? I mean, it's it's about 
getting the grades and getting to college and getting to the next big thing and, and doing it right and, you know, opening those opportunities. And that can be so exciting and it can be so hard because we are putting kids under the pressure that we think they need to succeed and, and kids are struggling with it. And you also said in your TED Talk that more is being done in schools to address mental health of teens. But of course, there are these limitations. Students are expected to advocate for their own mental health when they have never had to do so before. It's a lot to ask, and it results in students not getting help until they are actively in crisis. We are not taking a preventative approach to our mental health services, and it's hurting kids. Maya Dawson from her 2022 TEDx Youth at Cherry Creek Talk. Maya, it is true. Uh, schools are investing in mental health services. In fact, my daughter's elementary school just had a uh, therapy puppy brought in for kids who are having anxiety. My daughter has pet that puppy when she's been a little bit overwhelmed, right? And it does help. But you're saying that that's really just not enough, right, to just have those services. What do you propose schools do to help teens who need that? Yeah, we have the counselor office in the school. Yeah. And great, we have counselors and you're assigned a counselor when you go to the school. That's awesome, but when you have to leave your class, stay after school, jump through all these hoops to see a counselor, and even then, like, you go to a counselor if something is wrong with you, and, and that is the way it's talked about. Instead of, I feel like if, if we're talking in the classroom setting about, wow, you know, this is what anxiety looks like. This is what depression looks like. These are real, common threats to our mental health that are affecting kids around you. And if we're facilitating that conversation, that this is normal. It sucks, but it's normal. And then empowering kids to seek out those services because not all kids are getting that at home. That's where we can make a change. So you're saying integrating them into classroom work as opposed to saying, hey, you got to go to the counselor, but you got to do it on your own time, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think this approach is going to change things about teens and thinking about their mental health. What is it about doing it in the classroom as opposed to saying, yeah, we have a counselor that's right down the hallway? Yeah, well, and, and let me clarify, too. Like, I think the counselors are absolutely so important to have those resources for kids in crisis. That's essential. We need counselors. And I think that when we're making those counselors more accessible by talking about it in the classroom, then the counselor is seen less of, you know, some scary other party that you, you have to seek out when you're in crisis and more of, hey, here, here's a resource for you. Here's, you know, vocabulary to talk about your emotions. Here's why you might be feeling this. Let's break that down. What, what can you do to regulate? Because you even mentioned in your TED Talk about uh, maybe an English class writing about these feelings or getting them out in an essay as opposed to, you know, uh, not talking about them at all or maybe talking about them in a book and, and finding that connection, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's easy. I'm not asking for radical, like, <laughs> systemic change, but just looking in our curriculum because, I mean, mental health, it's relevant. It's, it's the very way our minds work. So, you know, when you're talking about, I talk about science and, like, neurochemistry and, like, oh, hey, let's talk about the chemicals that are causing these emotions. Let's talk about, you know, maybe if you're not getting the right food in your body, maybe that's causing some of this anxiety. In, in, in English, like you mentioned, I mean, 
we are reading books about characters with complex mental health issues. I mean, it just it's a deeper level of comprehension if we're able to break that down. And then kids can be relating to those characters and identifying more with their own experiences through that writing. What has been the reaction since your TEDx talk? It's been kind of crazy, actually. I mean, after people started watching the video, I kept having teachers I didn't know stop me in the hallway and be like, hey, are you Maya? And uh, wanting to talk about these things. And like, you know, I mean, I got a lot of apologies, right? Like, I'm so sorry oh. that your generation is struggling and we we want to help. And I feel like it's important just to check in and, you know, how can we be helping more? Um, So I've had English teachers talk about in their curriculums adding units um, about mental health and trying to work that in. Um, I have uh, two English teachers at my school actually have created a unit where they they show my TED Talk and then are encouraging their students to write TED Talks of their own um, with the idea that, okay, maybe mental health is not the thing that you need to express, but maybe there's something else that's big and that you feel like needs to be talked about. And I think that's really relevant, too, is giving kids the venue to speak. Maya, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Maya Dawson is a senior at Conifer High School. She spoke with Nathan Heffel. We've linked to her full TED Talk at CPR.org. The next TEDx Youth Cherry Creek event in Denver is March 4th. And over the next two months, we'll hear from other Gen Z voices on topics they say are important to them. When we come back, Colorado wonders about not just one, but two state songs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In Colorado, you can farm potatoes, sweet corn, melons, peaches, chilies, and you can farm ice. This is what happens in Uray every winter. Ice farmers send the city's excess water down two miles of the Uncompadre Gorge's canyon walls. After about a month of careful monitoring and spraying, Uray Ice Park opens to the public. Since the mid-90s, this mecca of ice climbing draws thousands of people every year. Equipped with crampons, special boots, ropes, harnesses, and axes, they take on 150 different routes and contribute significantly to the local economy. Climbers also enjoy the ice park in Lake City and frozen waterfalls like Fish Creek in Steamboat Springs and Zapata in the San Luis Valley. The sport gained a lot of visibility in 2019 when the first Ice Climbing World Cup Finals in America, featuring a 50-foot-high wall of ice, came to downtown Denver a Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble & Company. You may know Colorado's nickname or even the state flower. You might even know the state bird. By the way, it's the lark bunting. But did you know that Colorado has official songs too? CPR's arts and culture reporter Eaton Lane looked into the song's history to answer a Colorado wonders question. Amy Resnick grew up in Centennial, but a recent conversation with her roommate at Northwestern prompted her to submit this question. My question is, where does the state song, Where the Columbines Grow, come from? What made you curious about that, Amy? I was talking about John Denver with my roommate and Rocky Mountain High, and I was wondering where this other kind of superfluous, more outdated song came from when I was Googling the Colorado State song in response to the John Denver conversation. 
Well, in fact, two songs have been designated as Colorado's official state songs. Both songs' creators express a profound appreciation for nature and the breathtaking beauty of Colorado, and they were both influenced by memorable summers spent in the Rocky Mountains. Where the Columbines Grow was named the official state song in 1915. A.J. Finn wrote the song after being moved by a field of columbines he saw during a hike near Shinzel Flats. Finn came to Colorado as a school principal in Central City. During this time, Finn actively explored archaeology in Colorado when his fascination with the Mesa Verde cliff houses inspired him to write two books, The American Indian as a Product of Environment and North America in the Days of Discovery. In the time between his books on Native Americans, he wrote the music and lyrics which began as a poem for Where the Columbines Grow. The song includes outdated and insensitive references to Native Americans, but in 1915, the year Finn published it and it became the state song, he also dedicated it to the Colorado pioneers. Finn's lyrics don't just reference the displacement of Native Americans from the land, they also reveal his concern for the environment and foreshadowed present-day concerns about endangered species, drought, and wildfires. In 2007, an attempt was made to replace Finn's Where the Columbines Grow with John Denver's 1973 hit song, Rocky Mountain High. But despite controversy over how some viewed the Denver song as glorifying drug use, on March 12th of that year, the Colorado General Assembly designated it a second official state song, ranking equally with Where the Columbines Grow. Like Finn, John Denver wasn't a native to Colorado, but developed a deep connection to the state. When John Denver was camped near Aspen at Williams Lake, he witnessed the Perseid meteor shower raining over his head far from the lights of the city. That inspired him to collaborate with guitarist Mike Taylor in 1972 to pen Rocky Mountain High. Despite the widespread interpretation of the phrase, As a reference to drug use, Denver insisted that the song was actually about experiencing the euphoria of nature. Amy Resnick says both songs work well together. They honor both pieces of our state's history, kind of the older, more, I don't know, I think it honors both our history and where we've gone more recently with people uh, coming for tourism and just to enjoy the mountains. If you're wondering, is Colorado the only state with two official songs? The answer is no. Several states have more than one state song. And if you count anthems, ballads, marches, and honorary songs, New Hampshire and Tennessee have a total of 10 each. New Jersey is the only state in the US without an official state song. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. 
Email us your questions about our state at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.